Welcome to First Coat, where we explore public realm art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Eche, an artist and entrepreneur based in Brooklyn, New York. I run Distill Creative, where I curate and produce site-specific art projects for real estate developers. I focus on creating more equitable and inclusive projects, and I want to get more exposure for the artists and developers doing this work. This week on First Coat, we have Alexandra Gonzalez. Alexandra is the president and co-founder of Hive Public Space, a women-led urban design and placemaking startup based in New York City. She is an architect, urban designer, entrepreneur, and activist with experience working with private, public, and nonprofit sectors. She is committed to designing sustainable and resilient public spaces that are socially and culturally inclusive. In this episode, we talk about starting our own businesses, public space design, the bathrooms at Bryant Park, and how Hive Public Space works with artists for art and public space projects. Here's our conversation. Welcome to First Co. Thank you so much, Alexa, for being here today. Could you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yes. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here uh, and to get to talk to you. Such a treat. I love that question and the, this idea of like who you are, because it's one question that, you know, my answer has evolved so much through throughout the years. I think for me, I used to only focus on my professional academic side as to like that was sort of who I am. And I think the more that I've you know grown, uh, I think now I also include my my personal identity and in talking about, you know, I'm a woman, I'm an immigrant, I'm a person of color, mm-hmm. and how all of those things really solidify in my work and kind of are the reason why I am what I am and in, in, in the work that I do. I'm an architect, I am an urban designer. I am an activist, I'm an artist, and I'm an entrepreneur. So I wear a lot of hats, often changing throughout the day. You know, having my own business, I think that's part of the beauty of it, that you have to learn and evolve and be sort of thrown into things that you had no idea that you had to do before. I, you know, I just love public spaces, and I think that's that's where I am. Thank you. Yeah. It's great to hear that answer from you, particularly from you. And also, I feel like I can really relate in, you know, you get asked a lot, or I guess we used to get asked (laughs) in person at things like, what do you do? Sometimes I think that puts us in a box, like immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And like trying to find yourself kind of answering like the elevator pitch of who you are. And I think all of the complexities and all of the things that make us who we are, are part of that, right? The little things that bring in different layers and different things that how we see the world and how we live and experience the world that are so, so important. Have you been finding that you've been giving more of a, more of a, I guess, pluralistic approach to who you are as opposed to saying just one thing? I think I always force that answer to do kind of give it more than just one thing. Um, and it has to do because my education is, it, it has, evolved so much. So I have a fine arts and an architecture background. And then I went to grad school for urban design. So it has, you know, kind of within the same realm, but like still evolved and a little bit that I always feel the need to kind of the very least name those three disciplines. So I kind of try to keep it even if they were to ask me, what is it that you do? It's so complex, because uh, you know, Hive is it's kind of a complex organism of itself. How did you first start working in public space? So I think I knew that I wanted it to work in urban design before I knew what urban design really was, to be honest <laughs> with you. I think it was 
I really love this idea of loving the intangible things that happen because of public spaces, right? So the idea of the connections and the memories and the stories that take place because of this one thing uh, was something that I was always really interested in. And how do you kind of solidify those things or how do you allow for more of those good things to, to happen? So I started with, you know, going to uh, come into New York, first of all, and going to Columbia for urban design school. Where did you move to New York from? So I'm originally from Columbia. So I grew up in beautiful Medellin, Colombia, uh, so beautiful city and a valley, kind of an amazing uh, case study for urban design as is. Again, all of that, it comes into all of the design that I do. And then I went to Rhode Island School of Design. So I was in Providence mm. for a little over five years. And then uh, I moved to New York, so urban design, and then kind of being forced, not forced, but being introduced suddenly to such a huge city as New York and all the complex systems that are just happening all at once. It was like truly fantastic for me. And I was so excited to, to be part of all of that. Uh, soon after grad school, I started working for city planning. So I was uh, part of a publication um, called The Active Design, The Shape and the, uh, the Sidewalk Experience. So it was a publication that was led by Sky Duncan, the super talented Sky Duncan, who is now the director at NACTO. And I think something that was really interesting is that it was kind of going back to that idea of understanding the experience that to me was very important and that I was unable at that point still to sort of figure out exactly what it was that I wanted it to capture. Um, and then I went to uh, Bryant Park. So I was at Bryant Park for, for quite some time. I was there for about eight, eight and a half years, actually. So, so you can imagine that's such an amazing lab, right? Like you really get to it like tries so many things and it's a constant conversation because you put something out and then the public is reacting to it and it's a great audience as well. So it's a dreamland for, for a designer. So yeah, and then, you know, I think here we are 10 years after and we have Hive Public Space. How did you start Hive Public Space? So my, this is interesting. So my co-founder and I, um, we started about five years and it was sort of our head project kind of freelance whatever you know our baby that we did on the side and it kind of started for because we we felt that there was a need for companies that would understand all aspects of public so there was a niche and there was a you know group of firms that would focus purely on the programming aspect others would do more the management financials and sponsorship and then you have the designers, right? Often super divorced from operational needs and in the programming side. For us, it was like, how do we make sure that we bring in all of these things to the table and that we are responding to all very important aspects of public spaces? So that's, that's kind of how we started. In terms of the name was really funny is that at the beginning, when we were trying to establish like the values and, and what Hive was, we kept like asking ourselves what it's like something that is dynamic and that is transformative. And there's a lot of things that are working at play to make this larger product. And then my co-founder was like, oh, what about a Hive? And it was literally one <laughs> of the first names that we came up with. And here we are. So you said you started about five years ago. How has this past year 
been going? I think for me, the pandemic kind of really crystallized the importance of public spaces. I mean, we saw it firsthand, especially being here in New York City, where we don't have a backyard or a lot of private spaces. A lot of people don't even have a balcony or any of that. So our public spaces became so vital to our mental health or physical health and so many other things. So I think at that point when I felt like that now, it was the time for me to transition full time. So I've, I've, I left Bryant Park end of August and I've now been since working full time on Hive. So the, the scale of the project that we're now working on, obviously now having more bandwidth so we can do bigger projects and, and take on more. So it's been great kind of even adapting to that change because that's a big change to go from just a side project to suddenly be in your full-time job but it's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun and I think that's important just try to find joy in uh the work that we do is just so critical these days well congratulations that's a big jump and especially right now (laughs) when everything's so uncertain absolutely and it was it it still is it's kind of a scary one but I think it was kind of the right thing to do. I think for me, it's just growing. And I think you you kind of have to evolve and, and try different things out. And we've been lucky with the projects that we've been working on. We have a lot of interesting things coming out this summer. So Great. we're excited. <laughs> I think also for, for anyone listening who is thinking about starting their own business, art project or whatever it is, I, I also started doing what I'm doing now full time when I was working for someone else full time. So it it started as a side business or a side, I kind of hate the word side hustle, but um, it it basically started as a hobby, honestly, for for my project or what is now my business. But I was working full time as placemaking manager for Vornado, Charles E. Smith, and then JBG Smith in Washington, DC. And I was doing workshops on the side, basically craft workshops. And then that kind of evolved into distill creative, but I think it's really important to just start doing whatever you want to be doing while you have a paycheck because yeah. the the financial realities of running your own business are very terrifying. And if you have no idea how you're going to make that income before you, you leave your day job, I think it's even scarier. So that's that's really awesome to hear that you were doing it on the side for a while as well i just i hear a lot from other people like how did you start and it's like well i just started (laughs) and then eventually i got people to pay me money and then i was able to kind of do do it on my own absolutely no yeah and i think that's very important that people don't just think that you know our companies just emerge out of nowhere and that everything was thought out like yes but it has been an evolution and it's been um, baby steps along the way and learning and often on learning too, right? Like there's mm-hmm. things that we bring from our past jobs that we want to make sure that we are changing now that we have um, that opportunity to to do that. So for me, that's also very important. Like how do I make sure that I I can bring in the good lessons from my past work experience and then I can kind of infuse new ones into the mix to make for it sure. better. Yeah. For sure. That's I love super learning. Important. <laughs> I love learning on someone else's dime. So all my past jobs were great ways to learn. I also think saving money was something I did before I started my own business. And that's another thing when people ask me, it's like, well, I was able to make the jump because I had money in the bank. And for me, I don't like my family doesn't have 
you know, they're not going to fund my business. They don't fund right. my life. And so mm -hmm. for me to know that I would be okay, even if I didn't get a client immediately was really important to me. And I think for, for other, like, if you don't come from a wealthy family, basically, I think yeah. it's really important to be realistic about your, your financial situation. Yeah, no, for sure. Having like financial safety nets, because you might get a client one month, and you might not get it the next one. So I think even just the understanding that it will be a bit of a roller coaster and that there will be good months and bad months um, and being able to adjust for that and, and have a peace of mind that you're not really going to be worrying about really all the financial stuff. So that's key for sure. So thanks for sharing that too. <laughs> that's yeah, no, just want to bring it up because I think Again, it always sounds really glamorous, like, oh, I just left my job and I started my own business yeah. and I make art. Yeah. And I think that that is a great thing to aspire to. But being realistic is really important. And I also don't want people to be like, oh, I'm not doing it right. It's like, it is hard. You're probably doing it right. And you'll get there if you want to do something similar. Yeah. And I think we all we're all very different as well. So there is no perfect blueprint that would, you know, fit everyone, I think you have to trust yourself and you have to also make sure you have a good network around you uh, that is going to support you. That's also key. For sure. Can you tell us what placemaking is and what placekeeping is and what terms are you using these days? Uh, well, it depends who you ask what placemaking is, right? I can tell you what I think it is for me and, and, and the way we apply it at Hive. For us, it's all about connections. Honestly, I think Language is very important also. And I think that's why often I have issues with the idea with the word like placemaking or the term placemaking as a discipline. But again, it's already hard enough as is without even getting into the, the connotations about about the word that still a lot of people don't understand what placemaking or whatever we want to call it is. I think it should be about connections and it shouldn't necessarily assume that some of those elements do not already exist in the community. So to me, it's about asking the right questions, uh, finding out the right people, because I can almost guarantee you that there would be someone that has either done what you're looking for or thought about what you're doing. Um, and they have a better understanding because they've been thinking about it longer than you have. Um, so for us, it's a very... We're researching at uh, the beginning of every project. It's a lot of trying to figure out who's there, what have they done? Can we connect with them? Our work is very collaborative in nature. And I think that's also very key when it comes to public spaces. The, the more that you root it in the community, the more impactful the piece is going to be. So for us, it's about making connections and, and allowing for things to grow and, and evolve. I love that answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally depends on the crowd. <laughs> totally um, hard to explain. And I think that make that's what makes the what do you do question even harder sometimes. Yeah. What do you think makes a resilient and inclusive public space? I think one that is rooted in the community. So I think it goes back to really understanding its site and being able to transform based on the needs. So Honestly, in my opinion, a, a successful public space is one that can adapt to today's needs. So if today we needed to be a vaccination center, we can be a vaccination center. We needed to be a voter registration place, we're going to do that. But we can also do a, a farmer's market and we can also do yoga classes. So I think evolving and transforming, it's to me, it's 
key in a lot of these spaces. I think we tend to think that it's all about the design, right? So you have to have the most luxurious landscape architects or architects or urban designers, or it's all about the programming and you really don't have to invest anything in the space. And no, it's really like a very, like there needs to be a harmony between the programming, the design, but also the operational aspects that are so key. So somehow trying to manage a good balance between all of those, I think it's really what makes a good public space. And if you feel safe somewhere, then you're going to have create more memories, you're going to spend more time there, you're probably going to stay longer. So that means you're probably going to spend some money and you're going to then amplify and help the small business in the area or the street vendor. So all of these things are just part of this uh, universe that public spaces are. They're just so many things at once. I think that's what's beautiful about them. Are there any, any elements of a public space that you think are like every public space must have these things? I think there needs to be basics of accessibility to start, right? Like we should all be able to access and use all of the elements within that, you know, within the space. So that's sort of step one. And and we shouldn't amplify or say that it's a great space because there's a ramp or is it great? Like that's the bare minimum. So that's <laughs> step one. And I think we often do that. So I think being safe and, and, and also accommodating that, you know, our needs are very different, you know, the needs of a child or the needs of women, the needs of an older person are different. So having a good balance where we can understand and accommodate to different ages and, you know, abilities, it's so important. So I think that's, that's kind of the key. One thing that I think about and what a public space needs is a public bathroom. Yeah. which Bryant Park, it's like <laughs> every time I have someone in town, I'm like, we have to go see this amazing public bathroom because it's not only beautiful and well-designed and I think there are like flowers in there often, but it's also, it's 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 not um, policed, I would say, or like anyone can use it. It's, it's open actually to the public. Maybe they have hours, mm -hmm. but I think that is such an amazing thing that Bryant Park does very well. Can you talk a little bit about that? And if there are any like behind the scenes things we don't know about yeah. the restrooms? <laughs> um, so that was a really fun project. Actually, one of my favorite projects will be in Bryan Park. And so it, it was challenging because it was essentially an interior design project because the, the, the structure itself is a landmark building. So we were only allowed to work within the constraint of the existing building. Mm -hmm. But Bryan Park, like you were saying, even the design before, we have a high pedestrian count. So we our numbers are quite quite up there. I believe we have uh, over a million visitors a year just for the bathroom alone. And it does change, of course. But I think what it was important is that the that everyone will feel welcome and that would feel like they were safe and they were they were allowed to be there and they wanted it to be there in addition to making sure that we were using the right materials and the right things that would able to kind of withstand the use and the abuse honestly sometimes that the public gets it was important to kind of keep the soft touches that are so critical right so we wanted to make sure that there was always uh, classical music so there was always music in the background. Uh, there is always an attendee on site that is cleaning and making sure that everything is, is, is in place and it's 
impeccable at all times. There are always fresh flowers, like you said. Uh, that was something that was very important as well. And then we also had um, artwork. So uh, some of the artwork uh, that was coming from our artists in residency programs, we were kind of displaying it. And it was a bit of a tiny gallery in that sense. So all of these like tiny uh, things are exactly like everyone that I hear is like, they love the bathroom. And it's, it's so odd to think that someone would, could like a bathroom in a public space. Because that's sort of the one, the first thing that you're like, oh, I don't want to use a public bathroom. Um, but somehow challenging that in, in starting with solving the, the main problem that, that most people do not even want to tackle because it's so big. So chipping at it away in, in little pieces just really comes a long way. And that also was probably a, a budget line item. That... Yes, yes. So, so that's the, so one of the, the great things about um, Bryan Park is that, you know, everything is down in-house and we have a very, they have a very uh, multidisciplinary approach to everything as well. So um, the operations department was also very, uh, we were working hand in hand with bathroom attendees. So I was really asking them questions, asking them how, how do they clean certain things? How do they do this? So I'm directly understanding and having all the, the the knowledge that comes with not just being there, but how is the process going to be? Because I think in, in public spaces specifically, because there's so many people that are interacting, it's important to design thinking as a process and not as a product. So you're not thinking that this is what I did and then I can step away, but you're thinking that that's just kind of a milestone within the, the process itself. And it makes it better because then it's a conversation as opposed to just being like, this is it. Hopefully it works. Then you sort of step away. Yeah, bye. Good luck. Um, <laughs> yes. Good luck. Hope it works. Um, it's great to just be able to do that. And that was just really great. I'm really grateful to have worked on that one. So how do you work with clients now as Hive Public Space? So um, so our clients come from like, so we, ha we work with either uh, city agencies or real estate developers or sometimes community organizations because really our only thing is it has to be a public space, but we can touch on so many different aspects of it. Um, often we do more than one thing. So as I was mentioning, I'm, we're really big on understanding the who's and the what is it that you're trying to get out of the space. So a lot of our conversations at the beginning are trying to find out what the client wants in today, what they want in five years and what they want in 10. More often than not, especially now, I think when they do come to us, they're already thinking that they want a financially sustainable public space, which is great. Um, that's what we all want, but you have to sort of adjust the expectations that that's not something you can just achieve in day one by designing it a certain way. It mm -hmm. takes a lot more work than that. So a lot of it is an educational process, to be honest with you, in, in, in telling the client, yes, maybe we're, yes, we are going to achieve that. But in order to do that, we have to do X, Y, and Z. Given realistic expectation is just so key because you want to make sure that you adapt to that. And also, like I was saying, like it's important to us to be a process. So we we sort of define what our scope is. More often than not, what's, what's interesting is once we are able to educate the client as to all the other steps, our scope 
tends to always kind of increase, which is beautiful mm. in that nature. <laughs> um, that's just a dream uh, to be able to have, you know, add a little bit more. Um, but I think it makes a it makes a big impact. And I think for us, truly, the the most important part out of every single one of our projects is how can we make the biggest impact possible with our work. That's why we always bring in different people into every project because I think every project is unique and has its own set of problems and and, and concerns. So I know that I have to bring in different people to kind of fit in and, and help me tackle specific things. How do you budget for that? I guess, how do you start working with a client? Do you start with like an initial proposal type thing and then once you understand their needs give them like a full proposal with more robust numbers that can actually accommodate for all of the things you're going to need to hire out for yeah so i usually kind of try to break it down into categories right so i come in and i tell them we're going to do three categories for you so let's say it's uh, the urban analysis portion right and then we can do the usually is like design audit or urban design so we can get as that's sort of our forte, right? That's our area of expertise. So we can get as intricate in terms of we can design the whole thing or we can serve as a design audit for an existing landscape that they have or is the place already exists and it's just about making edits. And then we can also get into um, kind of the, a bit of the either programming or operational side or even get into kind of the art installations which sort of fits within the programming thing. Uh, so we break down the scope per categories and then we itemize them. And then we can kind of see based on the budget, which elements of that they want to take on. And then based on that budget, then also it, I kind of know how many additional people I can bring in um, that would add more depending on the scope. So it's 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 tricky because in in a way it's a little bit it's a bit of a project pre project in a sense trying to define what the right formula is for each one, but it just it just works so much better and I'm I'm a big fan of of working collaboratively so it helps and it's always fun to mix things up a little bit for sure yeah it sounds like being super flexible is a yeah. big part of the job in any environment, not just right now. So. That's true, that's true. And I think especially these days, right? I mean, like we are completely remote. So I work from home and I have uh, my co-founder, for instance, is in Europe. So obviously completely different time zones and um, working on projects in Latin America right now. So different time zones as well. <laughs> and everything is sort of digital. Um, but it's great because you kind of have flexibility and in, in, uh, you can also inject your own life and your own joy within your schedule. And it just works a little bit smoother, in my opinion. For sure. And then I imagine you do site visits or hire people locally. Can you talk through about how that works and then particularly how it's working now that you are all virtually working together? So, yeah, so definitely a site visit, at the very least, once I visit before kind of diving in into the design aspect for sure. Um, if there's a, if the budget allows a couple, um, often, to be honest with you, often is just one, but we always do partner with a local person. So whether it's an entity or whether it's an artist or, or a fabricator or something like that, someone that is local that we can really ask them questions if we need to just, can you go to the site and take a couple of pictures or a couple of measurements? 
it's really important. But I think it's just in essence, it just grounds the project too. So not just for the necessity wise, but I think just overall, just having someone that is there and that might be able to flag something that might not be as relevant as we think it is. It's just key. How do you work with artists? Um, so they're part of the team. Um, I think our, our teams are very non-hierarchical. I mean, I think the, the, the name of the game is collaboration for sure. Um, but we're very respectful of, of, of their work. So we always sort of come in with, we have an objective. This is what we're trying to accomplish very transparent from the beginning like this is our budget these are the constraints these are the you know issues because that just comes with the territory and urban art you have to evolve and know that you might have to adjust here and there um, I think you can you can you can relate to that but yeah but they're absolutely a, a part of the team and, and and we love bringing in artists and um, I love art installations it's actually like one of my favorite things to do um unfortunately there's not that many it's tricky but we're we're actually working on exciting ones for these summers so excited about that how do you find artists for your projects so we have a lot that just are in our network people that we have worked with in the past um honestly social media has been really great to find a great way to find new people because your portfolio is out there right it's just the easiest way to find new artists and new talent i'm also a big fan like whenever i'm walking around if i see someone right away make sure that i know who they are and i try to follow them or get a little bit more in depth as to what he or she is doing or you know what they're, they're doing so very organically to be honest with you we don't have a specific methodology or a directory that we follow it's just you know exciting people talented people that want to be part of the group and I, I really like what she said about giving them a clear budget and the constraints up front, because I think that is something that unfortunately some other agencies do not do. And then they kind of are pulling these artists along with these unrealistic expectations, maybe not paying them, expecting them to be in all these community meetings. And that is yeah. like my like it makes me so upset because then the artist might get turned off about working in this capacity in general, right? Yeah. And then the community is turned, everybody, everybody is upset with what's going on. Um, and I have been, I was in a position actually recently where I was approached by an art consultant who did not reveal the budget or the timeline or anything. And it's really hard, I think, to be realistic about what you can bring to the table as an artist when you don't know what those things are, because for me, if if I know I have I have to get something done in two months, uh, my budget might be different than if I'm going to have six months to do it because that might mean I need to hire an assistant or multiple assistants depending on the scale of the project. And all of those things go into how much an artist costs. Um, in addition yeah. to obviously the work and their where they are in in their career, if they're an emerging artist or a more established mm -hmm. artist, but. I imagine you like I do. We work with artists from all different levels, so yeah. giving them the full ability to actually put their best foot forward because mm -hmm. I hate to see artists either you know really giving a very cheap price because they just really want the project or like doing something really ridiculous but if they, they don't know anything about the project it's impossible for them to give something that's actually going to work for everyone yeah no I couldn't agree with you more I think I always try to be as helpful as I can possibly be and be especially for the emerging artists which for us we definitely work with um, we love to mix it up a little bit. We have some people that are a little bit more 
farther in their career, but always, always, always including emerging emerging artists. And yes, what you were saying, and and even the complexities and things that are like liability and insurance, and some of them have no idea what this is, and <laughs> you know, like that could be a big deal. Um, so doing as helping as much as we can to make sure that those things don't end up being a last minute we have to figure out situation it's important um making sure that we're always paying them fairly that's also super important and that's tricky that's one that we find kind of a tricky one with our clients because i i don't know if you've experienced this but sometimes they would say something like well in the past we've paid x for y therefore they think that that's going to be forever the price for that mural or that whatever that piece is and kind of trying to break that away from them and say well that that happened then that's great that this is how much this artist is worth and in making sure that they understand that that's a tricky one too uh but yes i think just being transparent is just so important in telling them like this is your timeline this is what we're expecting and try to give them at least a, a, an understanding if they do like we're saying the community meetings and things like that that they might not have like budgeted for at the beginning so that's i think helpful i think the bare minimum you could do <laughs> for sure for sure the bare minimum and i totally i've totally experienced that with um different clients you know saying yeah this is what we paid in the past or this is how much time it took in the past which is another thing for me mm -hmm. because i like to give artists enough time to actually give a good proposal because i feel like a lot of businesses or even nonprofits, they'll they'll be like can you send us a proposal by tomorrow or friday or monday and yes. it's like that's so unfair if you're actually a working artist or not working artists and you you know, maybe you this is a hobby thing and you, you are an emerging artist and you're very tied to this location. We need to be able to work mm -hmm. with them and their schedules, which are often just as erratic as our schedules. And I think Absolutely. it's so rude to ask for like ridiculous timelines. And then with budget, if people are working with the same artist, artists increase in price over time. So something oh. you got for cheap five years ago is going to be more expensive now. And I think that's just something that people forget when they're not in it all the time yeah absolutely and that's that's a tricky one that's a tricky one to kind of snap out of people just to make sure everything costs more all the time and and not every every mural is going to be the same thing right and always get paid for your murals if you are an artist and we will always Always. ensure that we let people know they have to pay for their murals. I think that's another kind of misconception like, oh, well, they would do it for free or they did it for free. And then, of course, when I talk to mural artists, they always say, like, don't do work for free. But my first mural I did for free. <laughs> so it's just like this weird. It's a weird. It's, it's chicken weird. and the egg. Problem, yeah. Right. <laughs> so sure. it's like you don't have enough experience, but then you can't pay you enough because you don't have experience. So. Right. Yes, totally. absolutely. What advice would you give to someone looking to pursue a career similar to yours? I think first of all, knowing that it's not a linear process, I think that's really important. And I think going back to what I was telling you earlier that I, it's hard for me to give a blueprint because it's impossible to do so. What has worked for me might not work for someone else. But I do think kind of uh, understanding and sort of uh, moving at the speed of trust, which is uh, <laughs> something that we use in my DAP collective, my Design as Protest collective. 
we talk about like right like how can we move at the speed of trust so like kind of growing as you move along and kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit more every time in my particular case it actually worked really well to start at a small company where i was because of capacity that means that you have to wear a lot of different hats and it means that you learn a lot of different skills that you might not get in a big firm again someone else might feel completely different but in my in my case it, it worked really well because i feel like i know at least a little bit of a lot and that means that i'm not just coming and being completely divorced from from understanding another discipline or understanding something else that happens so just being flexible and making sure that you stay curious and that you still trying to you know figure it out and be open to learn something completely different and to just do what makes you happy. I think that's that's so important and I think especially now just just really trying to find joy in in what you do it's just so important. Yeah, just try things and don't be afraid to fail. Start over. Can you share a little bit more about the Designers Protest? collective? Yes. So I joined uh, last year, uh, I think kind of in the in the middle of the pandemic, I think when we were all kind of craving this connection and, you know, upset in in, in, in a way angry about a lot of things that were happening. For, for me, for personally, for Hive, um, always design justice has been something that has been truly important and like one of the most kind of driving factors of our work to being able to join this collective has been fantastic we are a uh, BIPOC so black indigenous and people of color collective of designers that are essentially just trying to make sure that the built environment is accommodating for all of us it's been a great family honestly and and uh we are doing really fantastic work so make sure you follow and and, and see the work that we're working on it has a great great talented group of people there how would we follow so dabcollective.com and you know we're all over instagram twitter and all over the place we have a medium account where we worked on different writings and stuff um but it's been really fantastic just learning from everyone we're all over the country so just kind of coming in together and in working on many different groups so we have like a planning and policy which is kind of what i've been working on and then we have a direct action and then there's another organization that has completely emerged from it that is more uh dmu dark matter university that is focusing more on the educational kind of curriculum side of things so a lot happening uh but it's a lot out there and you should definitely follow yeah i'll definitely put this in the show notes that sounds really exciting and what a great way to use your expertise to give back and be in collaboration with others absolutely it's been it's been a joy it's been a so great to just meet different people and and i think right now we need community more than ever so it was just perfect timing earlier before we started recording we were talking about how the pandemic has made us really know our local areas much more intimately than maybe we we knew them before even as people obsessed with the public space so yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about what that experience was like for you and also some tips for helping people get to know their public spaces more intimately and also how they can get involved. How can they help with the decision-making process in those spaces? Yes. So super important. Um, if you're able, walk 
or as much as possible around your city, even if it's in small increments. So I think that's that's really important because really seeing it firsthand is the most the easiest way to get to know different places. For like I was saying, for me, um, I didn't used to walk around that much in my immediate area just because I, you know, like a lot of my friends are, you know, I used to work in the city in Manhattan. So, of course, it was like the daily commute and I wasn't necessarily spending that much time here in Long Island City, which is where I currently work and live now. Um but just, uh, I think it's important to just try different things, try to support the local businesses. Um, things are getting a little bit better, but I think we can all help out as much as we can. Um, in terms of trying to be active, you could try to find your community boards and see if that's something that you want to do. Um, frankly, there's always something to do. Um, you don't have to box yourself in a certain lane. Um, you could do a little bit. Um, and if we all do a little bit, we no one has to do a lot, which is so important in this. Going back to my DAP collective, we always talk about that. So, um, yeah, just trying to talk to people, really try to create more local connections. Just try to talk to people, which it sounds so silly um, and so intuitive, but we often take that for granted because we just get so... Um, like siloed into just our own group of friends or just being connected to our phones and not even looking around. Um, so just forcing yourself to make those connections and, and create memories in the place that in which you live uh, and not just use it as a point A to point B, but like really mm -hmm. try to create a network around it. For sure. that Those are great <laughs> tips. And that's it's something that I've noticed with some people in my social circle as well people who are usually traveling a lot for, for work or for pleasure. And mm -hmm. all of the sudden conversations with them are so much more interesting because <laughs> it's not about like, oh, I just went to uh, Italy and this and that. It's like, yeah, I was helping out at my local mutual aid and I met this yes. person or I just discovered this new playground that I've never noticed. Like it's 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 just night and day. And I, I think for as many things as, COVID has done that has really, you know, it's really impacted our lives on personal levels. We've we've lost mm -hmm. a lot of people um, mm -hmm. and in infrastructure wise and on so many levels, it's, it's made a lot of things really terrible. But there are some kind of little tiny points. Glimpses of, of hope. Yeah. Yeah. Glimpses of hope that if we really all kind of hunker down and get to know our immediate areas and contribute, we can we can make an impact. It's we we've mm -hmm. we've been doing it so. Yeah, just like pick a day and be a volunteer in a local park and plant, I don't know, bulbs or something. There's always something to do. I think you just have to look a little bit more and, and, and find ways to help out, like now more than ever. Definitely. Is there anything else that you want to add? Support your local public spaces. Um, they meet you and you need them. So make sure you do whatever you can to keep them active. They do so much more than you think. Um, they're just not only the economic development lifeline to a lot of our communities, but they could be so much more. Like I was just saying, if, if they can transform and really help our communities, they're really, really the glue to our cities. So I'm excited that people are at least paying a little bit more attention now about them. So let's hope we can keep that momentum going. Yes. 
And where can our listeners connect with you online? So our website is uh, HivePublicSpace.com and they can also follow us on Instagram or on Twitter, HivePublicSpace. Yes, awesome. I'm so excited to check out the DAP Collective as well. I will be putting all of Alexa's information in the show notes so you can follow her. Definitely check her out on Instagram, Twitter, website. And I am so excited to see the projects that are coming up. I already am blown away by everything you've been working on in such a short amount of time. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I'm also very inspired by you as well. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for being a guest and for kicking off more of the behind the scenes of how art in public space happens and how public spaces are managed. I think it's going to be really interesting to have your interview and, and other interviews. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of First Coat. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. Make sure to subscribe to the First Coat podcast wherever you list a podcast. And follow us on Instagram at First Coat Podcast or at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com. <laughs>